Hi, this is Robert Furl, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. The Bible says all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God is profitable for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped, lacking in nothing, for every good work. So God's given us everything that we need through His Word. So we want to approach the Word to be able to figure out what we believe. We don't want to approach the Word to back up what we already believe. And I think it's uh, something that we all have to battle with. We all have those things that we believe that we're looking to support through Scripture. And it's okay when we find things that support them, but we want to make sure that we're not just approaching the Bible to back up what we believe. All right? So our first question today uh, is one that was brought up in our study last week, and there was some discussion that was going on in it It as to whether or not we are under the law. And I want to go ahead, I, I pull up a few Scriptures here. Um, so Jesus said, not one jot or tittle of the law would be done away with until it is fulfilled. Moses opened up the law. And you remember that the law is good and that God gave 613 laws that were there. But you also remember that there were some concessions in the law. Things that God didn't want but allowed them to have because of their culture or because of their um, their, their, their just really lack of desiring what God wanted. God didn't want them to have a king, but God gave them laws on how to have a king. Um, God didn't want them to get divorced, but God gave them laws on how to divorce because God was giving them concessions. There's some other things that are concessions as well. But when we come to Christ, we go into the new covenant, not the old covenant. And uh, those who believe that we should keep the law, and there are a lot of different groups that believe that, uh, b believe that we are still under some form of the law. But the Bible clearly tells us that we are not. Moses opened up the book on the, uh, the law, opened the law, and Jesus closed it by fulfilling it. He became our sacrifice so we don't give sacrifices. He is our Sabbath, Hebrews chapter 4, so that we fulfill the Sabbath in Christ. For those of you who think you have to keep the law, well, let's take a look at a couple of verses here, and I think that will help us understand for those who may be listening who believe they have to keep the law. So I'm going to read Romans 6.14 first. It says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, clearly there it tells us there's a distinction between the new and old covenant. The new covenant is grace. The old covenant is law. And I'm not under the law, but under grace. Paul is so clear about not being under the law that oftentimes those who want to keep the law will do away with Paul's writings. They'll say that Paul wasn't inspired and only Jesus was because they're trying as hard as they can to keep the law which is a crazy thing that you throw away part of the Word of God because you want to keep a doctrine that is just not true. James also said in James 2.10, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, he is guilty of all. Now, if you're guilty of all and you stumble and you're trying to keep the law, but you don't keep all of it. See, people want to pick and choose. They're like the Pharisees. The Pharisees came up with their Sabbath rules and laws. It wasn't what the Bible said. It's what they came up with. And then when you broke their law, they claimed you broke the, the, the law. So today, they want to rewrite the law. For example, there are those who say you have to keep the Sabbath. And if you don't teach, you have to keep the Sabbath, and you're a false teacher. This comes out of the Campbellism Millerite movement that happened in the 1800s. It's the, the legalistic aspect of keeping the Sabbath. But they rewrite the Sabbath to mean going to church on Saturday, when that isn't what the Sabbath was about. I would respect them a little bit if they would go back and say, this is what the Old Testament said keeping the Sabbath was, and this is how we're going to keep it. But they rewrite the Sabbath law, and when you don't keep what they say, then they claim that you broke the Sabbath law, when in reality, they're not keeping it because they haven't kept what, what it says. They've broken the law, even the Sabbath law, on certain points and then claim that we haven't done it as well. Jesus said to the, the, uh, scribes, and Sadducees, uh, the scribes and Sadducees about the Sabbath law, he said, you teach the commandments of men as if they are the laws of God. And that's exactly what these Sabbatarian groups do who want us to be kept under the law. 
Now, Galatians 5.18, very clear. Now, remember, Paul is fighting the legalist uh, here in Galatians. There are those people that want them to be circumcised because the Old Testament said to be circumcised. And um, it, hey, if you're going to keep the law, then keep the law, right? And so, um, uh, Paul is fighting this the whole time through the book of Galatians. I went and looked up some of my notes earlier in Galatians where I went through several passages in it. Um, like 10 passages that said that we're not under the law. Let me give you a couple of them. Uh, Galatians 5.18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, that's really clear, and I don't know how else you could, you could say that. If you are led by the Spirit, then you're not under the law. Again, the Spirit and the leading of the Spirit comes with the new covenant, so you are not under the law. So, I don't have to make sacrifices I don't have to keep the dietary laws. I don't have to keep the ceremonial laws. I've been set free from all of those. How do I fulfill the law and the prophets then? The Bible says when you love God and love people, you fulfill the law and the prophets. Look at another passage here in Galatians. But after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. Now this a little bit earlier says that the law is our tutor and after faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor. So the law is called a tutor in Galatians 3.24 and then it says that we are no longer under that law. In Romans 10.4, another clear passage, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Christ ends the law because he fulfilled it all. The law wasn't bad, but we have fulfilled the law in Christ. So we have kept it through Jesus and through love. So if the law told me, this was the question we had last week, if the law told me that I had to go out and, and pull an ox out of the hole that fell into a hole in my yard, and if I love my neighbor and his dog wanders over and falls into a ditch, love would be, I'm going to go get that dog out of the ditch for my neighbor because I love them. Not because it's written in the law, but because I'm driven by love. So love causes me to fulfill the law. Now, one more here. This is Colossians 2, 16 and 17. And this is a very important passage because people are saying that you have to keep the festivals and the Sabbaths. And here, Paul says in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, so let no one judge you in food or in drink in regards to festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. Those are very Jewish things. Festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is in Christ. So we're not to let anybody judge us when it comes to these things. So no, we are not under the law. We don't have to keep part of the law. We fulfill the law by walking in love. We fulfill the requirements of the, of the, the sacrifices by following Jesus. We don't have a high priest today because Jesus became our high priest. We don't make sacrifices today because Jesus became our sacrifice. Um, we don't have to follow the Sabbath laws because Jesus became our Sabbath, Hebrews chapter 4 and so on and so forth. And then we walk in love and we fulfill the law. So if you have any other follow-ups uh, on this particular first question, then we would love to hear it. Um, good to see you guys here. Uh, a lot of stuff already going on online. Um, hello guys. Uh, so we have a question from Psychman. Uh, Psychman right out of the shoot. Psychman says, all things are lawful to me because we are not under the law if we don't abuse grace, 6-2. Is this about how it is? Thanks, uh, Robert. Thank you, Psych Man. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, let's um, let's go ahead and pull up Romans six two. I'll get that on the screen for you. All right, and thanks for putting that reference in there, Psych Man. I appreciate that. So we're going to go all the way back to six one here. It, it says, "What shall we say then? Shall we continue in grace in sin that grace might abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many as were baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? That is, you are identifying with Christ by being baptized into His death. So, Jari, in your question here, uh, you had asked, "Are all things lawful to us because we are not under the law?" if we don't abuse grace. Um, yes, and remember, the all things, yeah, I would agree with your statement, but the all things that are lawful is connected with not all things being expedient. So all things are lawful for me, but not all things are good for me. 
So it might be lawful for me to do it, but I might not want to do it because it's not good for me in the long run. It's not expedient. It's not helpful for me in the long run. Um, so just because something's lawful doesn't mean that we go out and, and do it. We want to um, follow Christ uh, with sincerity in our hearts, living wholeheartedly for him. All right, looks like we just have um, YouTube today. Is that right? Yeah, no, there's a Facebook there. Well, the Facebook is um, us. <laughs> so um, good to see you guys. If you have a question, you can uh, submit a question through the comment section. Write the word question um, or a question mark in front of it. Reread it a couple of times. Make sure it makes sense and, and says what you wanted to say. Include any references and we'll be able to take a look at those references. All right. But it is good to see you guys and to spend some time with you um, looking at different passages uh, that we have in the Bible. So Kimberly says, um, question, do we have uh, guardian angels? If so, is it at birth or when we come to Christ? What, um, what do they do for us? Thank you, Kimberly. Um, great topic. All right. So, um, yeah, Jesus said of children that their angels constantly see the face of God. And so children have guardian angels. And we also know from Hebrews that we are, that we have um, angels that are ministering to us to those who have salvation. So they help us, I think, in a lot of different ways. We don't know all the ways that they help us. It's interesting, talk to anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time, and they seem to have a situation where they wonder, was this an angel that was at work in this aspect in my life? We know that they do minister to us. I think that we don't know when they're ministering all the time because we would have a tendency to lift them up. But Jesus was strengthened by the angels twice after he was tempted by Satan and was 40 days and 40 nights without food in the wilderness. And then when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I wonder if when we are in distress, Kay, that the angels don't strengthen us. I also believe that they help to protect us because there's a spiritual realm out there and an enemy that really wants to come against us. It's been said that there are more, uh, a third of the angels fell, but the other two thirds remained faithful and they are ministering to those of us that have salvation. I also believe that they're involved in the gospel. So when you see the kind of things <clears throat> that angels did in the book of Acts, you see that Philip is coming out of Samaria and an angel tells him to go down towards Gaza. And so he follows the angel's direction and he meets the Ethiopian eunuch and leads the Ethiopian eunuch to the Lord. So that's in the gospel. We know that Peter was in prison when an angel opened the gate and let him out. And Peter didn't even realize what was going on until he got out of the prison. And then he went to the house of those who were praying for him and they didn't answer the door because they thought it was a spirit. Uh, such great, great faith in their prayer there. Um, but um, we see um, angels used elsewhere in the book of Acts. And remember, the Acts is the beginning of the work of the church. And I think we're seeing certain ways at which angels work within us. Um, do we have guardian angels? Uh, children do. I don't know if we do. Um, I think we have angels that are helping us for sure. And if we want to call them guardian angels, um, but Jesus said the angels of the children and um, so we know that kids do. And I think that that would be at birth and um, coming to Christ because we are those who inherit salvation. Spirit, uh, angels are our ministers. Now, what's interesting, and I've said this before, when Jesus became a man, he became a little lower than the angels, it says in Philippians. So we are lower than the angels, but the angels are serving us and we've been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which would encourage us to do a good job with the gospel. Let's live the gospel. Let's share it. Let's uh, look for opportunities to be witnesses for him and to be used by him. All right. Um, so hope that hopefully that answers your question and gives you some idea, Kimberly, on what angels do. I appreciate you. Appreciate your question. Uh, we have a question from uh, Debbie. Debbie says, uh, Pastor, can you talk about Luke 12, 47 and 48? One more time. Thank you. Good to see you. Uh, um, good to see you here today. Yep, good to see you too. And I would love to. So Luke 12, 
and I'm trying, uh, I'm sure we've talked about it before, right? I'm trying to remember what the passage is. Luke 12, 47 and 48. All right, and then let's go ahead and take a look at this. This is Luke 12, 47 and 48. It says, and the servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or, or according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone whom too much is given from him, much will be required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask more. So this is a passage that I've prepared for our study tonight. It's in my notes. I'll be reading it in our teaching tonight on the great white judgment throne because Jesus doesn't judge everyone the same and he doesn't punish everyone the same and he doesn't treat everybody the same when he's giving the rewards. Everybody is treated differently. And this is an interesting passage because it tells us that where much is given, much is required. So the more that God gives you, the more knowledge you have, the more light that you have, the more is required of you. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, if you were blind, you would have no sin. So someone who can't understand sin, who's groping around in the dark and they're completely blind and have no idea of right or wrong, doesn't have any sin. So that I think is the children. I think that's children. And I'm gonna talk about that in our study tonight. But if you look at this, so Jesus is talking about um, a servant who goes away, I mean, a master who goes away, leaves the servants there. And when he returns, he finds that his servants have not been doing what he wants them to do. And the servant whom knew his master's will, but did not prepare himself or do accordingly to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. So these are us that have been given a great deal of light, and we don't do what God has said. The great white judgment seat of Christ is one of the scariest passages in the entire Bible, because it's said that we are gonna be judged by our works, what we have done, and books are gonna be opened that have them written in there. But but people who don't know, don't have as much light, are not going to be held as responsible. So they're beaten with many stripes. Now, whether he's talking about, you know, he's talking about, he's talking about punishment, right? But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes will be beaten with few. And this goes into our next study, which is our study on hell, that in punishment, not everyone is treated the same. Remember on the day of judgment, it's more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for Chorazon and Capernaum, which were cities that Jesus did most of his miracles in. So Sodom and Gomorrah will have more, be more tolerable because they had the Messiah and they had the light of the Messiah. Now, uh, Kimberly, I think, or excuse me, Debbie, I think that we have been given a lot of light. When you think about how much light we have, how much we can study the scriptures, how much we can know, then we want to be sincere and without hypocrisy. We want to be loving one another. We want to be kind and tender, as the Bible says to, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach. If anyone's caught up in sin, you who are spiritual, go to such a one and restore them. Um, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. And then we don't do that. Instead, we're harsh and we're angry and we're, um, we're, we're picking fights, we're contentious. Then we are not doing what the Lord's will is for us. Now, Debbie, hopefully um, that's helpful with what you're looking at. As I said, the study tonight, um, what about those who didn't hear, never heard, and the great white judgment throne. We're going to talk about that passage and uh, look at a few more too that talk about how God judges people that have never uh, heard the gospel of Christ. Of Christ. All right. So we have a question. Uh, and if you have follow up, Debbie, if I didn't cover the area that you were thinking of, let me know. So we have a question from Nathaniel. And so Nathaniel says, "How do I know if I'm doing God's will or my own will?" All right, Nathaniel, I think that's a good question. Um, so we are to pray, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus prayed, 
not my will, but your will be done. And so we know that Jesus as God in the flesh going to the cross had a different will than the Father. His will was, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So he's asking for the cup to pass, but he's asking if there was no other way. There is no other way. And so the cup could not pass from him. So um, I think, and, and, and again, we pray daily, your will be done and not my will be done. Um, I think it has to be through the scriptures to some degree. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think it's got to be through the scriptures to some degree. So when I want something and wonder, is this God's will for me? I think that the Lord will give me direction. First of all, um, how does the Bible tell me to live? Now, remember, the Bible's not going to tell us what car to drive or what town to live in or what profession to have. But the Bible's going to tell us how to live in the profession that we have, what car we're driving or what person we marry, what kind of husband or wife we're supposed to be. So when we think about God's will, we're thinking about not what we might be thinking about, like, does God want me to have this car or not? Now, if God doesn't want you to have a car, he's big enough to be able to communicate that to you. And if you're really seeking him, then God's big enough to be able to give you, um, to give you the direction to help you with it. But when it's God's will, what he cares more about than what car you're driving, and I'm not saying it is, there's, some, there's not certain cars he doesn't want you to have, because there is, but what he cares more about is how you're driving that car. We get concerned about what job do I have? How do I know if this is God's will or not? But God's more concerned about how you live while you're in that job. Okay? So I want to show you a passage here, um, Nathaniel. And this is uh, Romans chapter 12. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So we are to present our lives and our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And it's reasonable. It's not extraordinary service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So the world is going to conform us. So we're going to want the things of the world. That's our will. But God's going to transform us by renewing our mind. That's the work of the Spirit. That's God's Word getting inside of us and changing us. That you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, how am I going to prove what is the good, acceptable, perfect will of God? And some people teach that this is three different wills that God has for us. You have the good will, you have the acceptable will, and you have the perfect will of God. And so you might go out and marry someone, later on find out from God, well, she was good for you, but she wasn't perfect, or she was acceptable, but she wasn't perfect. So that, that a lot of people, and this is how it's taught, a lot of people settle for good when there's acceptable out there and there's perfect out there. And what we want is the perfect will of God. This is the bullseye teaching. You know, you got to marry that right person. You got to drive that right car. You got to be in that right town. You got to have that right job. However, that's not what it's saying. It's saying we submit to God. We have our minds transformed. Now we're going to do God's will because we're not being conformed to this world. And God's will in your life is good, perfect, and acceptable. It's three aspects of the kind of will that God has for you good, acceptable, and perfect. And if we're supposed to pray, your will be done, your, your kingdom come, your will be done, then don't you think that God is going to reveal to us what his will is in our lives so that we can be directed for it by it? I only can remember a couple of times where I know that God spoke to me, that I could know this is God's will. One of them was moving to Tucson. We were in Albuquerque, praying about going someplace to see if God wanted to start a church. Um, there was a group of people meeting here, and it came around. And at first, that, that didn't quite work out. When I went back home, one of my friends said to me, uh, I thought you said you were going to Tucson to start. God wanted you to go to Tucson to start a church. And I said, I think he does, even though at this point we're not going. A little bit later on, Skip Peitzik, the pastor of Calvary Albuquerque, came and said, I can't get out of my mind that you're supposed to be in Tucson. So why don't you go and stay away from that other church? If they go right, you go left. If they go north, you go south. Kind of a lot, you know, uh, Abraham Lot thing. You go, you go the opposite way. And so we felt like God was leading us here. And I really do believe that God spoke to me. Now, the evidence that it was God's will was we, well, I, I mean, God's will, God's will may be for us to go through some difficulties and hardships. So sometimes you can hear from God and be directed by it. 
So um, I don't know that the evidence of God's will is success, which is what I was going to say. The church should become successful, but sometimes things aren't successful. There's failures when you're following the will of God because God's got his purpose in his failures as well. So um, the more you walk in the spirit, Nathaniel, the more you're gonna be able to know God's will, determine God's will, the more your mind is transformed by God, not conformed to the world, the more you delight in the Lord, the more you're gonna know what God's will is. Now, I've also said of God's will, I don't want it <clears throat> if God doesn't want it for me, even if I want it. So that means that there's a sacrifice, and that's why Romans 12 starts off with, uh, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Because you're giving up your will, what you want, to receive what God wants, which is a perfect, a good, a perfect, and acceptable will of God. All right, thank you, Nathaniel, and um, follow-up. If you have a follow-up question, if I didn't quite get it, then let me know. All right, so we have a question from Jari. Jari says, uh, question, Revelation 2.17, in the hidden manna, Jesus, or the meal we will eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Is the hidden manna Jesus or the meal we will eat at the marriage supper. All right, let me look at that passage. The hidden manna, I'll give them the hidden manna to eat, right? So, Revelation 2.17, 2.17. This is the churches, uh, yeah. Okay, so let me put this up on the screen here. It says, um, and here, let me just do this really quick. I'm gonna go back and look at <clears throat> the church this is in. So this is the compromising church, so it's Pergamos, um, and um, uh, they have some who are holding to the deeds of the Nicolaitans, um, and repent, or else I'll come quickly with the sword of my mouth. And then he says this, he says, um, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So there's some mystery here, Jari, in the hidden manna. Uh, Jesus is the bread of life. Would Jesus be that hidden manna? Um, manna was bread that came from heaven. It was um, supernatural for them. And these guys who overcome will be given some of the hidden manna. Just interested in what these references are here. Uh, what's John 6, 49 and 51? I think that's Jesus saying that he's the bread of life. Um, <clears throat> okay, so I'm, I'm just going to have to fall back on... Um, I just think there's a mystery here. I don't know what this hidden manna is. Um... Your question was, is the hidden man in Jesus or the meal we will eat at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Um, I hadn't really thought about the marriage supper of the Lamb. <clears throat> Didn't manage Jesus being the bread of life. Um, maybe. It's hidden. So that it would be a mystery doesn't surprise us. So there are some things that we just have to put on a shelf for further information or that God will give it to us later. And um, Jari... This for further information idea is, um, I'll give you an example. <clears throat> so rewards have always been puzzling to me. As I've taught through the Bible over the last 38 years, I come to passages where it talks about that he's going to reward us. And I always wonder, what, why, why reward us? When we get to heaven, we have everything. Everything belongs to us. What are those rewards? So I'm making my way through the book of Revelation this time, and I get to the glorious return of Jesus. This is when the sky scrolls back and Jesus comes through. He's on a white charger, Lord of Lords, King of Kings is written on his thighs. And then I start studying several passages about his second coming, about his glorious return, and I start to notice a theme. My reward is with me. My reward is with me. I'm ready to give my reward, and I will bring a reward when I come. So his reward is connected to his glorious return. What happens after the glorious return? The kingdom of God is set up and we rule and reign with him. And I wondered then, and I see this connection greater, that if the reward isn't us being able to rule and reign with him, 
that some will be given higher positions because they have been faithful and because of that, God has rewarded them. So when he returns, he brings his reward with him. Now, the reward may be his presence, um, but, but the way the reward passages are is that they're greater than others. So this has been something I've had on the For Further Information show for a long time. And now I've seemed to got a lot more information on it. So we put something like the hidden manna on that shelf in our mind for further information. It's hidden. I'm not sure what it is. And maybe one day we'll be reading a passage, maybe out of the New Testament or Old Testament. And all of a sudden it'll be like, oh, I get it now. All of a sudden there'll be something that we truly do understand. All right. Thank you, Jari, for that. I appreciate it. We have a question from Empress Kimberly. Question, what is the difference between fallen angels and demons? I personally don't think that there is any uh, difference between them. I think um, the term demons is a Greek term. I think a fallen angel is a descriptive picture of a demon. Uh, now, it's popular now. Um, I think Dr. Michael Heisler I think Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, I'm not 100% positive that they teach it, that the, the demons in the New Testament were the souls of the Nephilim who were killed. That they're like angels and their souls were eternal, so their souls continued to roam the earth. That's an interesting question because if angels have eternal souls, there's the argument as to whether or not humans have eternal souls. So what would be the difference between the Nephilim dying and people dying if people have eternal souls? Why would the Nephilim's souls roam the earth, but men's souls be held in the grave? And um, you know, maybe maybe there are answers to that as you start to as you start to look through it. But I don't believe there's nothing in the. It's like that's an idea, right? That people have come up with but there's no scriptural evidence that I've ever seen for it. So they can't go to a passage and go, this passage says this, and therefore I think this is true. There's nothing that even alludes to it, that the demons are the spirits of the Nephilim. It is, to some degree, an ad hoc argument. It's just kind of those things you throw out there that's like, well, maybe this is what they are. I think, you know, that it says in Ephesians, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and a spiritual host in heavenly places. Now, the angels are going to be thrown out in the book of Revelation in the, in the, the tribulation period that Michael and his angels will make war against Satan and his angels and there'll be no more room found for them in heaven. But we're now battling against a heavenly host. So I think the demons are fallen angels. I think that these are just different descriptions uh, talking about what demons are. And I'm trying to remember the word. Um, we could look up the word for demons, exactly what it means. Uh, can't bring it to mind. So um, if somebody wants to, to find out about that, give me a um, give me a reference where the word demon is, and I'll take a look at it in our Strong's Concordance. And um, I really wish we could pull BDAG up. I'm looking for ways to do that. I do have logos, and I might just need to spend some time getting it set up here. So we uh, we do have people from Facebook here. We have uh, Tamara, or Tamara. Uh, good to see you. Uh, you can always tell Facebook because it's longer questions. They give you more room to be able to write the questions. Um, question, I love Jesus and want to go with him to heaven. Is it sinful to want to die at an old age and want to grow old with my husband and want to live to see my grandchildren, grow to see them become young men <clears throat> and see God move um, their young adult lives? I am 47, by the way, and my grandsons are infants and toddlers. Um, no, Tamara, I don't think I, uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and drop this down. I can still see your question here. I don't think it's sinful to want to continue to live the life that God's given you. Um, I had, when I got married, um, my late wife was um, 19 and I was 20. And let's see, yeah, and she was about to turn she was about to turn 20 and I was about to turn 22. We were pretty young. 
and um, we had kept ourselves pure, and we'd been we'd been engaged for a year and a half. And the closer we got to the wedding, and things get more and more intense the closer you get to the wedding day, um, when you when you're keeping yourself pure. And I I got thinking the rapture is going to happen and I'm going to be taken out of here right before I'm married. It's going to be like this big joke from God. I'm walking down the aisle, poof, it's going to happen. And it'll be like, but, but we're thinking more in human terms there than we are thinking in really what would take place and happen. Um, God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so God waits as long as he can. Peter said, God's not slack concerning his promises, but desires that all would be saved. So he wants as many people coming in as possible. And so God's waiting for that time in the end. And that seems to be the best motivation for saying, you know what, I'm willing to stay here and do the work that God's called me to do. Because the truth is, um, it's a Tabera, we, we don't know what's gonna happen tomorrow. I don't know if, if I might find out that my life changes dramatically and that what has been blessing to me so far will now all of a sudden be difficulty. We just don't know. But I don't think it's wrong to desire these things. It's, a, it's loving the life that God has given you, but we are not supposed to love our lives. Uh, martyrs didn't love their lives unto death. And in, the, in, the, um, in history, uh, there was a martyr by the name of Perpetua, this is gal. I think she's early 20s, maybe younger. And all she had to do was denounce Jesus, but she wouldn't do it. And she stayed faithful to it. Now, some have mocked her for, for what she did, but God saw that as her not loving her own life even unto death. And we talk about rewards, and she will be rewarded for that. Um, no, I, I think you just continue to walk with Jesus. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm older than you. And I've come to the place in my life where I say, huh, you know, Lord, if, um, if, if you wrap things up now, it's, it's okay. It's all right. Um, that doesn't mean that I want to die. <laughs> I want to live, right? Because we all have that desire that we want to live. So I understand that completely, um, Tamara. My late wife passed away um, when she was 50. And she found out that she had lung cancer that was stage four in um, when she was 40, I guess 48 and uh, or 49, 48 maybe. Um, and all she wanted to do was go over to our, our newly born, um, Evan was born two months before she died. And all she wanted to do the last month of her life was go and hold Evan. It's just what she wanted. I'd say to her, what do you want to do tonight? And she's like, I want to go and hold Evan. So I call on my daughter and say, hey, can we come over? And we'd go over and sit and she held him and loved him. So that was her biggest thing for missing was the grandkids. And, and here's your desire to see your grandkids grow. And I understand that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that desire. All right, tomorrow, thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. Um, so Jari, uh, is this a follow-up to our angel question? Dry says, if there are guardian angels, do they war against guardian demons? I don't know if there's guardian demons. I don't, I don't know how you could have a guardian demon. Guardian of what? And try to protect the children. Thanks, since there is always spiritual warfare going on. I think there's definitely spiritual warfare going on. I just wouldn't call them guardian demons because they're not guarding anything. They're, they're demons that <clears throat> want to, um, the devil uh, swarms around seeking whom he may devour. All right. Uh, let's see. Um, we um, did I, did I? I don't think I, I missed a question. Uh, did I? Um, Keith. By the way, just uh, is Keith is here today doing the moderating. I think so. Um, I do have my do not disturb that's on, but um, I have my. Um, I don't know if the, the text will come through. Um, if I miss a question. I guess I could put things on silent. We'll, we'll figure out a way. Um, sometimes I miss questions as I make my way through here, and I want to find out a way that we can, you know, I can just know that these questions have been missed. All right. So I think I missed a question last week, and someone had asked to rethink it. I can't remember to cover it. And I can't remember what it was. Um, 
but we have a question now for our, from Lainel. Lainel says, question, <clears throat> as Christians, can we believe in folklore? For example, we had a beautiful rainbow um, around the moon last night. Okay, um, yeah. Folklore says it's a sign of signs for the angels. Oh, can you believe in folklore? Um, I, I'm going to say that I would rather not do it. Uh, if, um, you know, every time a ring bells, an angel gets their wings or, uh, there's an owl in my backyard. That means something bad's going to happen. Um, you know, or, um, in the Catholic Church, there's buried Joseph outside somewhere when you get a new house. So they bury statues of Joseph places. Um, and all of these things are ultra biblical. And I think I would rather just trust in what the Bible says and, and not having my fate in anything like that. Although this isn't a fate question, which makes me hesitate. If your folklore that you were talking about was a sign that affects you, folklore says it's a sign from the angels. Yeah, I would, um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Um, I'm not interested in what folklore says. I want to know what the word of God says and live by what the Bible says. Um, is it wrong to do that? Does it start to get into the area of, uh, sorcery and witchcraft? Um, I don't know. I probably don't think so. I think I'd be taking that too far. So I don't know that it's wrong to do it. Um, can we believe in folklore? I just don't know why, why you would. What, where would that folklore come from? And why not just really look for biblical truth and objective truth? So we know objective truth is all around us. And um, subjective truth is, I like the color blue. blue the, the blue's best color out there. That's subjective because some people don't like blue. So objective would be um, an objective truth. It's um, now almost 15 to, to 5 where I'm at. That's not subjective. That's objective. So we want to look for objective truth. And um, we want the truth that comes from the word of God, which would be objective. And I would say I wouldn't put a lot of stock of folklore. And that's, that's me. I don't know if I could say that you would be wrong for thinking that. Um, I mean, really thinking that the angels are communicating to you through an aura around the moon? I, I don't know that that would be the case. So, kind of stumped on how to answer you. Okay, thank you. I appreciate your question. Um, question, was reading 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16 again during my daily study and wanted to know your thoughts on head covering requirements that apply in today's time? Uh, yeah, Joe, thank you. Um, so, th this has been something on my shelf for further information for a long time. And there's a lot of things in that chapter. Um, talks about women keeping their heads covered because of the angels. So, what's that all about? Um, Paul seems to be upset. He says, um, if a woman isn't going to cover her head, she might as well shave it all off. So, and that the hair of the woman is the glory, the hair of a woman is the glory of the husband, and the glory of a woman is her hair. Um, and I think there was something going on in the church in Corinth that had to do with authority and disrespect to the husbands. So, culturally, I think there was a way in which you could disrespect people and not be under your husband's authority, not having your head covered when you were going to worship seems to be one of them. Now, I think ultimately we would say, and if, if, a, if a woman's coming to church, and we have this, we have women that come to church and they have a, their head covered. They cover it with something. They have a, either something they've, they've made, crocheted, or, or something that they just cover up their hair with. And I understand what they're doing. And quite frankly, I think that that's a good thing with their conscience. They read it, their conscience is struck, they believe they need to cover their head, and they do. I think it's cultural, 
but maybe but maybe there's something there so i um i mentioned a mike winger video last time on head on um flat earth the flat earth um mike winger did a six over a six hour video on first corinthians chapter 11. so if you look up women in ministry series mike winger uh first corinthians 11 3 through 16 or first corinthians 11 on youtube you're going to get his six hour video and, and imagine how thorough that is to cover every aspect of what's in there <clears throat> i love in the beginning he kind of gives you a synopsis of what the chapter is his um his outcome and then you can s listen to it now i listened to all six hours of it uh, i was just driving while i listened to it so I broke it up and at, at different times and driving um and i can't remember all of the details but I think the conclusion that he had was there is more in the, the head coverings um, that is often given to it today. And certainly that if a woman wants to cover her head, then there's, there's no reason we should tell her not to. Um, seems that there are cultural things in there. Um, so where the passage says that women aren't to braid their hair, as I understand it, there were cultural things where um, women who were more promiscuous or prostitutes would braid their hair. And so um, that's cultural. So there are things that are cultural. Can this be dismissed as cultural? I, I don't know whether it can or not, but I think there's more to it. So sorry to be, again, it seems like I'm on a lot of the questions not being super helpful, but I'm sending you to the right place. So go watch that six hour video or listen to that six hour video. Um, <clears throat> not only can you find it on YouTube, you can find it on Bible Thinker Podcast. So that's what I did. I went and Bob Thinker podcast. And I drove when I was driving. I listened to that six-hour video, and I think it was um, it was helpful. Another thing I like about that six-hour video is it really shows how to break down a text and to deal with different things. So if you're wondering how to really study the Bible thoroughly, then that is a great passage to help you do that. All right. Uh, good to see you, Violet Stag. Good to have you here. I hope things are going well for you. Let's see. We have any more questions? <clears throat> Always good to see you guys interacting. If you are new here, really glad to have you. Uh, you can ask a question by writing the word question out, then asking your question, then rereading it, adding any references that we can take time to look up and to see what they say. Um, all right. So, are we at the end of our questions here? We might be. Um, Vance, good to see you. Um, I'd realized that the question you asked a few weeks ago when I was running out of time, that I didn't really answer your question. I kind of got on the topic and, and went through it and didn't really answer your question, um, but I can't remember it completely. Um, so, um, we have a question from Jari, from Keith, from last time. From the comments section on our last Q&A, Jari, Daniel Moore had a question. Is In Matthew, it says, I will gather my elect from the four corners of the heavens. Yeah, that's the one that I skipped over last week. Thank you, Keith, for putting that in there. So that's a way we could handle Passover questions if I go by them and didn't see them, is that we could have you put them in next time for me that I could be able to get them. Um, yeah, so let's go, what was that, Matthew 24, 31? Am I thinking right? Let's go, let me go ahead and, uh, and go there. <clears throat> there are a few four-corner passages, by the way. Um, but Matthew uh, 24, 31, I think it is. 24, 31. <clears throat> um, yeah. So it's, um, we'll gather from the four corners. So this is worded a little bit different. Let's take a look at this. It says, uh, this is after his glorious return, and he will sit his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and will gather together. A trumpet was a blast, a gathering. I think that's why you find it in the rapture, the resurrection rapture, and you find it here. Um, to gather together the elect from the four winds of one end of heaven to the other. And so the way this is worded is not the four corners of the earth, but from one end of heaven to the other. And so the question was, uh, are there believers that are in heaven that are gathered in that last days? Well, 
all believers have come with him. Um, I think that this is more of an idiom. So he's going to gather all the people that are alive on the earth uh, from one end of heaven to the other, meaning everybody who's alive on the earth. There are Gentiles who are still alive <clears throat> that are going to populate the millennium. There are Jews that are still alive that are going to populate the millennium. Um, I take it there are children still alive because he consumed um, he, he, the armies at um, the armies that were against him in the Battle of Armageddon. Uh, he destroyed with the sword that was coming out of his mouth and called the, the great feast to the birds. But the children weren't destroyed. So there were children from all different nations that would, that would populate the millennium. And so I think that this is an idiom saying, I'm going to go gather everybody together and bring them to Jerusalem because there, you know, the kingdom's going to be established and people are going to serve and follow from there. And this is going to be during the millennium period. Um, an idiom, what is an idiom? <clears throat> an idiom is a saying that's making a statement that you can't break down the words to what the words mean. Okay, for example, um, if I say it's raining cats and dogs outside. Now, someone may from another time look back at our statement. You may, might find the archives of these and goes, did it rain cats and dogs? You know, if they're 2,000 years in the future, if Jesus waits. Um, did they rain? Was it raining cats and dogs in there today? Well, and we might go, what was that about? What, 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 but it wasn't that at all. It's raining outside like crazy. It's a heavy rain. So my idiom says it. Um, three days and three nights turns out to be an idiom. When you go to the Old Testament, there's a statement, three days and three nights. And then it says, on the next day he went. So it's, it's like, like Jesus was crucified on, a, on Friday, perhaps. There's some who believe it's a different day. Resurrected on Sunday, which is like only one full day in between. A part of three days being dead. Um, but that's, there's an Old Testament passage that makes it look like it was an idiom. Like three days and three nights, but it wasn't literal. It was, it was referring to the day after next. And there's a passage that you can go and break down. I can't remember where it's at, but you can go and break it down and see. So there are all kinds of idioms that we use. So is this an idiom from their day? He's going to send out his angels to the four winds of the of, of heaven, um, from one end of heaven to another. <clears throat> Gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. I can't, I can't think of it being literal in the sense of the saints are with him. Um, you've got the resurrection that's going to take place at the at the end of during this time Jesus comes back and there's a resurrection. So could he be talking about the resurrection? Let me put this back up on the screen for you. Could he be talking about the resurrection here? His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. <clears throat> Would they be resurrected like the resurrection rapture and caught up together in the air? So again, in our theme for the day, I'm not sure I'm giving this um, answer a good quality uh, or this question a good quality answer. All right, um, but there's there's some ideas could be an idiom, maybe there's just something that we're not getting, but I don't think that's the case. Um, yeah, I don't. And, and the rest of the question that Keith brought in um, was this was the question from last week: Does this mean Christians will be in the vastness of outer space in the last territories? So wondering. Are, are we looking for people to go colonize Mars? And that's when Jesus is going to return. I don't think that that's what it means, but I'm, I'm really glad you added that in um, because if we're, if we're even in, in satellites up around the earth, or not satellites, in um, space stations up in orbit around the earth, uh, then could it be a literal that they had to go and collect these people that were in outer space? Um, Good, good question, and um, the answer to that is, I don't know. What you generally want to do when you're reading a passage is look at what it meant to the readers. And there are certain things like everybody seeing the Antichrist and the false prophet come back to life. So there are certain things that we look at and go, you know, it only can be fulfilled through what technology has brought today. Everybody sees it. And what did they think when they read that? How do they think that everyone... Um, was going to see it. So I, I don't know. All right, but that is a good question. Um, 
is it going to be fulfilled in that way? Maybe, you know, like I said, maybe it's just as easy as space stations. Space stations are out there. Um, and uh, maybe there will be a colonization of the moon or Mars. I don't think there will be, but maybe there will be, all right? Uh, uh, thank you, Vance. I appreciate that. Uh, and uh, again, good to see you guys. Uh, so Psychman has a uh, question, another question. Psychman says, do we need more than John 3.8 to disprove baptismal regeneration? Uh, if we can't predict our schedule, the work of the Holy Spirit, it can't happen during, um, during baptism. What do you think? Uh, let me look at John 3.8 here. Um, and I'm going to keep your question up here because I don't want to forget exactly what you're asking and go off on some tangent, which I've been known to do once or twice. John um, 3, 8. So, um, we're asking about baptism, right? Let me go ahead and put this up on the screen here. Baptism, baptism regeneration. Um, it says, the wind blows where it wishes, and it's in red, right? Because it's Jesus. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay. Um... So, do we need more than John 3, 8 to disprove baptismal regeneration? Um, I think if I were going to, if we can't predict the, the schedule of the work of the Spirit, so the wind blows where it wants to, um, so if we can't, if I were going to disprove baptismal regeneration, I would go to the fact that the Bible never tells us that we are saved by baptism. Um, the Philippian jailer, jailer is told, believe and be baptized and you will be saved, you and your family. In other places, we're told, believe and you will be saved. We're never told, be baptized and you will be saved. We do have Acts 2.38 where it says, where Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. But we've pointed out before that for there is also translated because of. And so when it reads, repent and be baptized because of the remission of sins, because you're identifying with Christ. And so I would call, I would call baptism regeneration a work. I realize the Church of Christ who believes in baptismal regeneration, they believe the miracle of salvation happens when you are baptized. We'll call baptism not a work, but it most definitely is a work if you're doing it in order to be saved. If you are, they're, they're saying repentance brings you about to baptism and, and that's when you're saved. Um, but it ends up being a work because they're like, I'm saved because I've been baptized. I know it. So that's how I would deal with baptismal regeneration. Um, if we can't predict to schedule the work of the Spirit, it couldn't happen during baptism. Um, and, and, and that's not to say, Jari, that and if I'm understanding your question correctly, um, that's not to say that when someone gets baptized that they couldn't get saved at that moment. Because it could. But the baptism didn't cause it. It just means that they went in the water and surrendered their lives to Christ and by the act of faith ended up becoming a Christian born again at that moment. Or right before they were baptized. So it's not to say that that can't happen. I'm sure that that has happened. Like the Ethiopian eunuch was pretty close to his salvation. But, but Peter did say excuse me, Philip did say to him, believe, um, when, the, when, when the Ethiopian eunuch said, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? Philip said, believe and you can be. Believe in Christ with all your heart and you can, believe that, yeah, believe in Christ with all your heart and you can be. The Ethiopian eunuch said, I believe Jesus is the son of God. And they dismounted and they baptized him. So believing has to precede baptism because believing is the salvation. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It doesn't say believes and be baptized. So we know that believing is the, the, the generator for baptism, not baptism itself. All right, thank you for the question, a psych man. Good to see you as always. Good to see you guys here. Just gonna scroll down to the bottom and see if there's any more. Um, our time is done. It's been good to spend time with you. 
Um, remember, we are not under the law. If we walk by the Spirit, we're not under the law. And if we walk by the Spirit, we won't fulfill uh, the deeds of the flesh. And uh, again, that'd be a great life verse. Endeavor to walk in the Spirit <clears throat> today, tomorrow. Um, and our lives will be transformed. We will be changed people if we are endeavoring to walk in the Spirit. I think a second part of that is look for the way of escape and temptation. You got temptation going on right now? Look for the way of escape in temptation. All right, so it's been good hanging out with you guys today. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. I'm out. Oh, we have a service in about an hour. We're going to be talking about the great white judgment throne, and we're going to be looking closely. Do children go to heaven? Does the Bible say they go to heaven? What about those who have never heard? How is God going to judge those who have never heard? Will God be unfair to them and just, you know, throw them in the lake of fire and, and have them, you know, their punishment forever? So we'll be talking about that. And then next Wednesday night is the teaching, the long promised teaching on hell. Um, we're going to be covering that. And we're going to be looking at the historical view and other views on hell that there were in church history and some debates that we have going on today. So we'll be looking at that later. All right. So I'm out. Love you guys. We will see you later on.